Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth, brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors. Hello, and welcome to McKinsey on Startups. I'm Daniel Eisenberg. Any number of companies and industries have been upended by the pandemic of the past two years, but few consumer sectors have been more radically reshaped by the changes in our daily lives than food delivery. At the outset of COVID, lockdowns and physical distancing requirements gave the category an enormous boost as delivery became a lifeline for the ailing restaurant industry, not to mention folks stuck at home who couldn't bear to spend any more time in their own kitchens. Two years later, food delivery has gone from a steadily growing but still small piece of the restaurant and grocery business to a veritable dynamo, worth more than $150 billion globally and having doubled in the U.S. Whereas restaurants largely used to handle the limited delivery options that existed, these days a complex ecosystem of players is involved, with an economic structure that is still evolving. The fact that the sector has largely remained unprofitable hasn't dimmed the appetites of investors continuing to plow funds into it. At the same time, global quick delivery or Q-commerce players are raising the stakes, promising the arrival of groceries, restaurant food, or virtually anything else in only 10 or 15 minutes. Today, we're excited to explore this dynamic sector with two of the co-authors of a recent McKinsey report on its ongoing rapid evolution, McKinsey partners Vishwa Chandra and Victoria Lord. In addition to their experienced consultants' view of the food delivery business, both Vishwa and Victoria also bring an operational, even personal perspective to their work with the industry. Vishwa, who's based in the firm's San Francisco office, was previously a member of the executive team at Instacart, one of the earliest grocery delivery platforms, leading the retail partnership team there. Victoria, who is based in Miami, has served in commercial leadership roles for fast-growth startups in the food industry. She comes by her interest naturally, as her family has owned a franchise restaurant for more than 50 years. Vishwa, Victoria, it's great to have you with us on the podcast today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Our pleasure. Vishwa, let's start here. What did the evolution of the food delivery ecosystem look like in the two to three years before the COVID-19 pandemic? You know, it's a fascinating time to be in food. Uh, we are genuinely living through a once-in-a-lifetime evolution in how people eat, how people engage with food, how people engage with each other over food. And this isn't just the last two years. This has been playing out for the last number of years. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, the food sector was going through a lot of growth from a delivery perspective. However, we were getting to the point where it felt like incremental progress. You know, you had seen some consolidation in the delivery platforms. Uh, you were seeing some new offerings come in, but it was steady growth, whether you were talking about restaurant delivery or grocery delivery. Competition was there, but you had seen some stabilization in the competition. You know, the, the big four here in the U.S. were the primary delivery platforms. There was clear delineation between channels. Restaurant delivery was restaurant delivery. Grocery delivery was grocery delivery. You'd seen some convenience delivery pop up. And while growth was, was continuing in absolute terms, it wasn't necessarily a majority of the sales, right? If you think about restaurant delivery, right before the pandemic, we were probably at $40 billion of a $600 billion industry. And a large majority of that $40 billion was pizza delivery, which has been there for ages. So, you know, it was it was seeing a lot of growth. We'd seen this evolution, but we had gotten to a point of incremental progress. 
The other thing I would add is we were starting to see um, experimentation with new business models around food and food delivery. Things like dark kitchens were starting to pop up in the ecosystem, but they really hadn't fully landed. And while there was some investor backing, the models were not totally embraced by restaurants. We were still seeing that hesitation on part of the restaurants to experiment in those ways. I think those sorts of changes in the business model and that desire for experimentation has been much more in the news in the past 18 months or so. So you had a foundation there, but you didn't really have a true fundamental shift until the pandemic forced lockdowns and the closures of restaurants for so long. How have players in this delivery ecosystem responded to the pandemic? And how has it impacted the the growth trajectory of the sector? First and foremost, I think everyone in the sector was very conscious of how to make sure there was safety for their employees, their colleagues, and their customers, and recognizing what everyone was going through. Subsequent to that, there was a recognition that depending on which channel you were part of, we almost saw from a delivery perspective five years of growth within five weeks. There was some volatility in early on when people were a little apprehensive about ordering uh, delivery. But once that quickly uh, stabilized, you saw a significant uptick. So suddenly their only means of reaching their customers was through delivery. And they had to very quickly adapt and evolve their offering to be able to do so. Right, Making changes in how they thought about staffing, how they thought about production, how they thought about packaging their product. And then how they thought about their own economics. But it required a fundamental rethink of their business, a fundamental rethink of how they engaged with their customers, how they engaged and, and gave them that experience and delivered on what consumers were coming to them for. Right. And I think the figures in your recent article are something like the U.S. market doubled in size in the last 18 to 24 months. We didn't expect that to happen for at least another five years. The two things that were fascinating, not only the the absolute amount of growth, but the speed at which which that that happened. And that put pressure on a number of other requirements. For example, the delivery platforms. We talked a little bit about restaurants having to adapt their operations. Delivery platforms had to grow their delivery base, right? Um, Had to recruit, onboard, train a number of delivery drivers to be able to actually meet this demand. They had to make changes from a product perspective. You know, contactless delivery was something that was never anticipated before. Uh, you always wanted to do that. live handoff to the customer, suddenly contactless delivery was incredibly important. And to be honest, consumers adapted as well, right? For them to understand what it meant to have the experience they were looking for from the brands they had loved previously and almost redevelop that relationship. But there was also an experimentation, uh, an exposure to new brands, new cuisines, um, and almost a return back to nostalgia as well. And we saw this with a growth in demand for both traditional cuisines that had always been part and parcel of delivery, but also sort of things that had resonance from people's childhood, uh, from people's experiences through life. Yeah, every industry had to adapt in so many ways to the pandemic. But when you think of restaurants and the food delivery platforms, the amount of pressure that they were under to adapt while business was growing so much, it's kind of amazing to consider. In the recent article, The Rapid Evolution of Food Delivery, you talk about three factors that will play a key role in the success of the various players. Geographic competition, commission rates for restaurants, and driver delivery fees. 
Of those three, which do you expect to play the biggest role for the industry in the next two to three years? It's an interesting question. It depends who you ask and from whose perspective you're looking at. If you think about from a, a, a delivery platform perspective, geographic competition is one of the primary drivers of their business. You know, just because you had three platforms or four platforms that were serving a market doesn't mean consumers were necessarily going to eat more food. You were sharing the same demand within an area. And as consumers have started cross-shopping and shopping between platforms, the competition for their share of stomach and their share of wallet continued to grow. So the degree of competition and the loyalty that you had within a customer in this particular market became incredibly important. And you saw a lot of deliberate efforts being done by each of the delivery platforms to draw that. You saw the growth of loyalty programs, subscription-based models, trying to lock consumers in to ensure that a larger portion of their spend was on their particular platform. For restaurants, it was all about commission rates. In the end of the day, commission rates are what drives the economics from a restaurant perspective. Whether someone was eating in their restaurant or delivery, food costs, labor costs, packaging costs, you're looking at slight variations. In a world where commission rates were almost the highest sort of single bucket and expense item for a restaurant, even greater than their food cost and their labor cost, that is the single largest determinant for the restaurant and for their economics and how sustainable this is for them. As you think about driver rates and delivery charges and all the ancillary charges there, you know, from a consumer's perspective, that has implications for them. As they start thinking about that slice of pizza, that burrito, that burger, and the true cost and net cost that they're paying for it, once you factor in everything from a delivery cost perspective, from a tip perspective, from a surcharge perspective, that starts to have an implication on the amount they have to spend and how much are they getting for what they are spending. Right. I know for myself, sometimes I'm wondering, am I going to have it delivered or still order with one of the apps, but I'll do pickup. It is interesting that you mentioned that. You know, we talked about the necessity to evolve the product. You saw a first wave of product evolution during the start of the pandemic, and those were things like contactless pickup. As this volume has stabilized, and as you've seen this demand grow, you've seen the next wave of product features. Pickup is one where people are investing very heavily because it is not only pushed from the consumers, but also pushed from restaurants. As costs and fees are different, the experience is different, they can maintain that connectivity with their customers, they can get people in and sort of have that personal touch with it. And another aspect of that, I think, is this growing trend of convergence in terms of the types of products that delivery players are delivering or want to deliver, whether it's ready-to-eat or groceries. What is driving this trend and the shift? And what will it mean for the competitive landscape overall among these platforms? We are very much seeing a convergence. You see the traditional restaurant delivery customers and platforms going into grocery. You see the grocery delivery platforms getting into ready to eat and, and meal delivery, both directly and with their partners. In the end, it's a battle for the share of stomach, right? Prior to the last two years, consumers had thought about these channels very distinctly. Going out to eat, getting something delivered, and having ingredients for which you would cook your own meal were very distinct occasions. As folks have spent more time at home, 
in the last two years as folks have redefined their their relationship with food as an experience. For many, it was the only experience that breaks up the day. And so we are definitely seeing convergence. Uh, Some of it is also driven as you think about, is this a winner-take-all market or not? And we believe there will still be multi-marketplaces and multi-platforms, but you will see continued consolidation, which we've already seen in the last two years, and continue to see that as fewer platforms gain that consumer loyalty and are able to control a greater share of stomach for them. Vishwa mentioned share of stomach, but as the delivery platforms start to expand into different categories, it's no longer just share of stomach. It starts to become more of share of wallet for a given consumer, because now a a consumer can log into their app and buy anything. I can place an order for dinner tonight, for alcohol, for groceries, and for sunscreen and pet food, all through the same ecosystem. And so as we think about convergence and we think about what these apps are doing, they're making it easier for us to have more of our occasions and more of our shopping needs met through one ecosystem. If you think about what Amazon has done in the retail space, or what some of the super apps are starting to do in Latin America and in Asia, I think that there are some very interesting um, examples for how broad some of these app ecosystems can become over time. Speaking of that, I know Gatir is moving into California with 10-minute delivery, and DoorDash recently announced going into 15 minutes or less grocery delivery in in New York City. Is this going to be a major focus going forward? Is there a race to the bottom in terms of time that they're going to promise? It's funny you ask that, right? Because it's a magical experience. The question becomes, in terms of absolute market size, how big is that? And that comes down to, you know, occasions. There is definitely a convenience occasion. There is an emergency fill-in occasion um, where that speed does become important. But as you think about consumption patterns and as you think about demand patterns, and as we've looked at it, it is a smaller portion of the market. And that's why I think you see some integration where different platforms are approaching it differently to say, how do we actually serve up the right offering that meets the customer's needs at that moment? So whether you're ordering restaurant delivery and want to add on a pint of ice cream or a six pack of beer, whether you're suddenly out of um, baby products and diapers in the middle of the night or children's Tylenol. Your ability to get that at that moment of need with the right offering is what is going to be important. I think that's exactly right. The other thing I would add is consumer willingness to pay. You hit a limit at some point. So, you know, I'm willing to pay a premium if I realize halfway through making a meal, I need something desperately to finish off that meal. I'm less willing to pay a premium if I'm doing a big bulk grocery order um, that I don't necessarily need tonight or even tomorrow or the next day. And so I think we'll start hitting the bounds on some of the consumer willingness to pay across different categories and occasions like Vishwa mentioned, and that will be part of the limit on how much is possible through these app ecosystems over time. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, sort of testing the limits of the demand for instant gratification. Victoria, let's shift a little to focus on the economic forces on some of the stakeholders. And in particular, let's start with the restaurants. How should the restaurants think about balancing growth in delivery versus their core in restaurant dining? This is a tough question, and there isn't one single answer here. Restaurants really need to be deliberate. We've heard before in other contexts that not all revenue is good revenue, and it's true here in food delivery too. So if I were a restaurant owner, I'd be taking a really close look at my economics for my restaurant or my chain of restaurants 
And I'd be looking at how much do I actually make on an average delivery order after all of my cost and the third party fees, including refunds, by the way, how does that compare to my in-store profit margin? And can I handle that delivery volume within my existing overhead structure and staffing level? Or am I starting to adversely affect my in-store business or incur additional operational cost to meet that delivery need? I think, especially now, many restaurants feel that they must participate in delivery, but the decision to do so is much more nuanced. I can think of several restaurants in my local market that have chosen to use their own delivery fleet rather than participate um, with a third-party platform. They might require that you order through their own websites, even if they have a third party running the last mile logistics, or they offer pickup only. And those are all ways restaurants can pull back some of the control and the margin to themselves. I think the answer changes for a single store mom and pop style restaurant than it does for a large chain that has many more resources and, by the way, brand recognition um, at their disposal. So for the mom and pops, I think it comes down to how much do you actually need the delivery revenue? Is it critical to keeping your restaurant and your business afloat? And if you do need it, then what's the most cost effective way that you can participate in that part of the market? For the larger chains, I would be testing new business models. I would be looking at operationally, does it make sense to use a dark kitchen or a commissary that pulls the delivery out of the existing restaurants, do smaller format restaurants that are more streamlined for delivery and pickup make more sense. And I'd be working really hard on getting to good partnership terms with the third party platforms. It's their incentive to have great restaurants on the platforms. So that's something for the larger chains to think about as well. One thing you talk about in your article is, will restaurants going forward really make a conscious decision to focus more exclusively on all delivery, whether it's dark kitchens or something else, or focus really exclusively on in-dining or pickup going forward? You had an exhibit in the article that showed if more and more of the restaurant's revenues are generated through delivery, in terms of the current economics, that can be a double-edged sword. So what is the impact you expect to see on restaurants' profitability if more and more of the revenues are generated through delivery? You mentioned numbers in the article, but I'll mention them here just for folks who are listening. Restaurants traditionally made margins of 7 to 22%. So on a $35 order, you're looking at $2.50 to $7.70 in margin. Delivery platform commissions are roughly 15 to 30%. I don't even need to do the calculations for us to know that that math just simply doesn't work. So while the revenue from delivery grows, profitability for the average restaurant declines. Um, and of course, the more of that restaurant's business that goes to delivery, the worse and more unsustainable that business model becomes. I have family members who are in the restaurant business and they've decided against offering delivery from their restaurants for exactly this reason. Do you expect at a certain point increasingly consumers to bear the cost of commission costs, more of paying more for delivery items, restaurants having different menu prices for delivery versus in-store? So I think there's two parts to that question. I think restaurants can and will increase their cost online. And I see this already with the restaurants I order from. I mean, your average consumer is probably not pulling up the menu in the delivery app and the menu on the restaurant website to compare but I do because I'm curious and I do see anywhere from a few cents to a dollar difference in menu pricing, depending on the menu item and the underlying menu cost. Now, again, I'm looking for it. Most people don't, 
That said, there is some flexibility for restaurants to pass on some costs to consumers. And I think we've seen that in other spaces. You're paying a premium for delivery, for convenience, but it's hard to say that consumers will bear all of the cost. They're going to bear some of it, but restaurants um, will continue to have to eat some of those costs because they cannot possibly pass on a 15 to 30% delivery platform commission on top of 10 to 15% service charge, the delivery fee, and the tip that consumers are already paying. You know, we talked about the economics in the article and we broke it down by each of the players in the ecosystem and consumers are already paying quite a bit. The restaurants are too, but I don't think you'll see a complete shift from the restaurants portion of those costs onto the consumer. And talking about those economic forces, shifting over to the delivery platforms, what are two or three key areas in which they can drive down costs in order to achieve profitability going forward? Whether it's more on the logistics side, routing, batch orders, what do you see there? I hate to even talk about batching because as a consumer, I don't like it. Seeing my order get picked up and there's three stops on the way and I'm thinking about my food getting cold. But the math works for the platforms. The more orders that can be picked up at the same time and delivered in the same delivery run, the lower cost of delivery per order the economics there makes sense. And I think that that is something that the platforms will continue to experiment with. And as their technology and the routing software get more sophisticated, they will be able to do this better and better over time. In general, getting very tight on operational timing matters a ton for the platforms. Every minute is money. I think all of the platforms have quantified exactly how much money every minute adds up to. So making it easier for drivers to pick up orders without waiting, to drive tightly optimized routes, to drop off orders easy, you know, the better it is. Vishwa mentioned earlier this contactless delivery feature. You know, it's great for social distancing in a pandemic style environment, but it's also really great for reducing the time it takes a driver to drop the order at the door. So the delivery platforms benefit from that feature too. I think some of this is achievable through process enhancements. Some is going to be through system and underlying technology enhancements on the delivery platform side, like the routing software I mentioned. And then some relies on restaurants to do operational and process improvements, like having dedicated pickup areas or better signage and so on. We mentioned earlier the cost of getting a customer, just customer acquisition and this move toward loyalty and subscription programs. I think we will continue to see the platforms push on that. Because when you lock me into your ecosystem as a consumer and I have a preference for your app over others, it means I'm more likely to spend across those categories we talked about. It also means you don't have to offer me additional promotions to get me into the app. Yeah, I was wondering about subscription services, how big a part of the market they could become, both for loyalty, but also you have some regular recurring revenue on that front too with subscription revenue, which is always something favored by investors. Is that something that will remain niche? It's an interesting question because if you look at many of the delivery platforms, whether it's on the restaurant delivery side or the grocery delivery side, subscriptions are already a, a large part of their offering. And when I think about the subscriptions, not necessarily like meal kit subscriptions, but this is more getting preference from a reduced service charge perspective free delivery, better access to promotions it is a major portion of it. And as each of these platforms expand their offering, 
you will see them trying to look at it more holistically to lock in consumers within their ecosystem, whether it's services provided by themselves or others. Playbook that has been followed by many in the past from a payments provider's perspective, from hospitality, from airlines that have long-lasting loyalty programs. But I think it also becomes very interesting as consumers start saying, who's going to actually start paying for that? Because at the end of the day, you know, yes, platform is rewarded with customer loyalty, but it does come at a cost. If your service fees are, you know, 5% versus 15%, that's very meaningful. And so what we're seeing is that becomes a point of contention and a point of discussion between retailers or platforms, between restaurants or platforms, or how the cost of that loyalty, where the benefit flows and where the cost flows. Speaking of the consumer perspective, We've talked about how there is a limit to what consumers will pay. What can consumers expect from delivery services in the two to three upcoming years in terms of price and experience? Look, I think you'll see a couple of things. One, the continued channel blurring, right? Currently, a, a restaurant platform looks like a restaurant platform and a grocery platform looks like a grocery platform with some add-ons. And I think you'll see that line blurring between each of them. And so you'll continue to see that convergence and the expansion of that, as Victoria mentioned, into alcohol, into pharmacy, um, into adjacent categories, uh, office products, things like that, where you're trying to capture a greater and greater share of, of just a consumer's daily consumption needs, whatever that consumption may be. I think you're also going to see a much more personalized um, emotional connection that these platforms are going to try to make as they try to move away from just being a transactional platform. And whether that's increased use of social, increased use of video, greater degree of engagement with each of the consumers. You already see that in other geographies internationally where they're ahead of what we see here in the U.S. And while in the U.S., we've stopped short of super apps that you see in many other parts of the geography. I think you will start seeing apps play a bigger and bigger part in an individual's role, right? The convergence right now has always been just marketplaces. I think you'll see uh, greater integration into other social networks and other platforms, all of which are engaging with consumers on different topics and are trying to expand their reach. I don't know as a consumer whether to be excited about this or scared about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. The last thing is just this generational shift. You know, young families with kids drive the food industry, whether you're a grocer, whether you're a restaurant chain. And as we see this generational shift of millennials starting to have kids, Gen Z starting to have kids and continuing to progress in their professional lives, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. You've already seen certain platforms who have taken a bet on being more relevant to the next generation of customers and benefiting from that. In the piece, you talk about untapped revenue pools, and you, you mentioned quite a few, dark kitchens, virtual brands, brand spinoffs. Can you talk briefly about which of these have shown the most promise to date? Many of these are now quite at scale. And 12 months ago, 18 months ago, they were experiments. Two that I think we see quite a bit of the growth of dark kitchens. Victoria talked about that this is a very operationally intensive business. And as much as we hate to talk about batching, because absolutely it, it delays you getting your food and, and the food quality diminishes as time goes by, dark kitchens allow you to get some of that batching benefits, a greater chance of grouping orders together than if you were a single kitchen or a single brand. And in addition to that, we're also seeing virtual brands. Retailers and restaurants are suddenly realizing that they have a resonance with brands and can they actually expand into it? 
So you have grocers launching ready-to-eat restaurant brands, full-service kitchens, whether that used to be just their deli counter, suddenly they've got full-service restaurant delivery from a grocery store, or you've got existing restaurant brands saying, we can launch a third, fourth, fifth brand, um, leveraging much of the same equipment, leveraging much of the same ingredients, leveraging much of the same expertise that they have. Yeah, I experienced a virtual brand this summer. My 11-year-old on a trip told me that there was a Mr. Beast burger in the next town. And uh, he had to explain to me the whole YouTube thing and the burger spinoff brand. You can get a Mr. Beast burger almost countrywide now. Yeah, exactly. Victoria, one of the other things you talk about in terms of revenue pools and, and new ideas is something you call menu engineering as an opportunity. Can you expand on what that might look like and what it will take to get there? Menu engineering is fascinating on a traditional restaurant's menu board. Every single item has a role to play in terms of the level of its popularity, its profitability, and whether it's bringing folks into the restaurant, driving volume, or driving margin for that restaurant. So menu engineering online is the same thing, but much more dynamic because you're able to use data to make well-informed decisions on a much more frequent basis. You can collect and use data on ordering patterns to revise your online menu pretty regularly to promote those higher margin items up at the top, to cycle in and out of special offerings um, or items that you need to move quickly because you have a significant supply of burgers sitting in the cooler. You can change your bundling strategy to drive volume and you can change prices easily. And then you can also use that data to find the right assortment, the balance of number of items that people are expecting to see. You're seeing this in the brick and mortar world too. Burger King, for example, just announced they're moving to a streamlined, simplified menu to speed up some of their drive-through operations. And they're not the only chain that's done this recently. I think what this level of menu engineering will take though is deliberate data collection and deliberate data analysis and the ability to make and implement quick decisions. Some restaurants simply won't have the scale and the capability to be able to do this, but some can. And by the way, the platforms um, could make this a service offering at some point to do this for restaurants because they have the data and they can actually compare across multiple restaurant banners, multiple markets, multiple menus to be able to provide really rich insight. And they have the data scientists who can do it, right? Whereas restaurants may not, except for maybe the big chain. Exactly. And I think the other part is personalization. So we see a little bit of user-specific personalization in menus already. If you open up the menu for your favorite restaurant, odds are good that you will see a section at the top that says items for you that are chosen based on your past preferences and what the app has learned about the menu items that you like. You could imagine, if you get creative, a scenario where you would actually see a different menu if you pull up your app for the same restaurant than what I would see. And so you could potentially see different pricing there at some point. I think this is much harder to implement operationally. I think the possibility of consumer blowback is much higher for something like this. So who knows if that level of personalization and menu engineering would actually happen. Right. When you talk about menu engineering, it also makes me think about when you pair that with engagement and social commerce, um, I wonder if some platforms are already doing things like vote on the next menu item a certain restaurant should add or that sort of thing. It is not outside of the realm of possibility. I think there's so much more possible than what we're seeing today, which is pretty exciting. We've talked already about the profitability challenges in this sector, but despite all that, 
money continues to pour into the sector from investors. What is the outcome that investors are betting on, given that they're conscious of all these economic challenges? Look, I think it comes down to food is still one of the largest sectors in the world. If we just take the U.S., for example, it is a $2 trillion annual spend between consumable groceries and restaurant, not just on the delivery side, in aggregate. So it is a very, very significant market that is going through a lot of change. And so ultimately, the platform that is able to influence the consumer is the one that will be able to drive significant value. You know, in the past, that used to be by presence, right? Whether it was shelf space in a retailer, whether it was the location of your restaurant, whether if you were on the high street, whether you were in a high foot traffic area. And as much of that decision is moving virtually, that is what makes it very interesting and very compelling for many of these companies. Yeah, I think about something like Dark Kitchens, the money going into that part of the sector, that in some ways the absence of presence, right? It's everything in the shadows making this happen, not in front of the customer. And uh, I would assume that that kind of innovation from other tech and startups is going to come very much on the back end going forward. I've been hearing much more about restaurants starting to, to trial their own dark kitchens, uh, where they are doing small delivery-only storefronts, much more in the dark kitchen style, in some cases possibly offering um, out part of that capacity as a third-party service. And so I think it will be very interesting to see as that type of business model evolves, how much of it will continue to be with the third-party players who have existed to date versus the larger restaurant chains making their own investments in this space. So the business model evolution behind this, I think, will also continue to be quite interesting, not only on the platform side, but on the restaurant side as well. As we're closing here, anything you want to touch upon, just the the broader picture going forward? We opened the conversation by saying how exciting all of the developments of the past couple of years have been. And I personally am quite excited to see what comes next. We have seen a tremendous amount of innovation. We have seen it at a much more accelerated pace than we expected. And as a consumer, as someone who works in and is passionate about the space, and as someone who has family in the restaurant business, I am just very excited to see what comes next here. Well, I think we're all both participants in this and observers. So it's, it's going to be fascinating to continue to watch. And uh, this discussion has been great and uh, made me hungry as well. So, uh, so I think it's, it's definitely a good, good time to end. Time to get lunch delivered in 10 minutes. Right. Vishwan Victoria, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Thanks, Daniel. Well, that's it for today's episode. Thanks again so much to our guests, McKinsey Partners, Vishwa Chandra and Victoria Lord. As always, I also want to thank our McKinsey on Startups production team, Molly Carlin, Polly Noah, Sid Ramtree, Myron Shergan, and Katie Zamorowski. And of course, thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us again for McKinsey on Startups. This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback, so please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth. Thanks for listening.